Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. Today's episode is a little different. Normally, I'd be sharing a coaching call with you today, but since you've just met my friend Dominic, I'm going to turn the tables a bit. You see, after I interviewed him, I asked him to interview me. I wanted to give you a chance to get to know me a little better, and it seemed only fair to put myself in the hot seat since I'm asking others to do the same. I hope you enjoy getting to know me a little more in this week's interview. Hello, Nancy. Hey there. Um, You're an artist. (laughs) You create. Yeah. Would you say that, uh, what's your main form of creating right now? Is it writing? Oh, that's a good question. That's a really good question. It's probably writing. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the other things you do besides writing? I mostly do singing, which I've had a little bit more trouble with recently. My my voice kind of gives out a little bit more quickly than I want it to, which really annoys me. Um, <coughs> so I've kind of taken a break from that to try to solve that problem. But I don't know how much longer I can do that before it starts to get to me. Cause, Understood. Because after a while, even even just singing along with Ella Fitzgerald in the car is better than not singing at all, right? Um, Can you scat? No. no well, <laughs> I probably could scat exactly the way that she does on a recording because I've listened to it so many times. <laughs> there you go. I've never, I've never tried to improvise anything like that on my own. So who knows? Maybe, <laughs> maybe I would be okay, and maybe it would be a train wreck. But, um, but yeah, no writing and and. I think probably we ought to count interviewing people, coming wow. up with people to interview. Um, so, but yeah, those those are the big ones, and I, I really want to start doing some theater stuff again too. Nice. So it's just a matter of finding finding a show that has has a role for a woman who's between twenty nine and you know sixty. <laughs> you don't find the show; the show finds you. That's probably so. True. Maybe you need to write the show. Well, you know, I I did that once. I've only done it once. But I did write a 10-minute play a, way too close to 20 years ago that was performed at a local arts center in New Jersey, which was awesome. a really interesting experience because, you know, when, cool. when you write short stories or a novel, it's all you. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, you... Uh, I want to say you're the master of your domain, but that's not necessarily true because your characters can just kind of look at you and go, you think I'm doing that, but I'm going over here and I'm doing this other right. thing. And and then you think you're crazy the first time that happens. And But if you're smart, you'll follow them and see where they go. Um, but when you, when you write a play, it's not yours anymore after you get done with the actual on the page stuff. I mean, you may uh, get to have input into it when somebody's sure producing it and they may say, this part's not really working. You know, can you do something with this? But otherwise it is out of your hands. And, and I remember hearing from different people who were involved in the 10 minute play festival where it was performed that, you know, they'd given this one character a really Jersey kind of accent and whatever. And I've, 
thinking, what? What are you doing <laughs> to my play? And, and then when I saw it, I mean, I'm glad that I knew that ahead of time because otherwise I think I might have freaked out when I saw it. But when I saw it, I thought, you know what? That actually works. That, that, that's all right. Okay. But you do kind of have to surrender that control freak in, inclination when, when you're Absolutely. having somebody else perform your stuff. Well, I think, and that's why difficult. probably you're more comfortable with writing because it's less collaborative. Is that? Sorry, you're kind of collaborating with yourself. Right. You know, I mean, you, you have to be willing to read through what you have and say, that part there, that doesn't, doesn't really make any sense. And this opens up this whole question and that's never answered. And so is the, right way to handle this to answer the question somewhere else or is this a sign that it doesn't belong here or that it needs to become another thing so it, you're still collaborating but you're kind of collaborating with different parts of your own head and trying to figure right. out what's the right thing but you do have creative control at least until you hand it over to an editor <laughs> i wasn't trying to insinuate that you don't work well <laughs> with others by the way um would you find that writing is a very cathartic way of creating it can be it kind of depends on on what you're writing it, it certainly can be illuminating and there there are moments you know depending on how how the process is going at any given time some days it's like pulling teeth and you're just sort of sitting there going, okay, it's good. Just decide it's going to be crap and you're going to write crap for the next hour. <laughs> and it's okay that you're writing crap because at least it's better than writing nothing and you can fix it later. And then there were other days. And when I was writing The Silver Child, there was at least one time that I wrote 10 pages in an hour. And, you know, it was. It was a day when I didn't have to go anywhere. You know, it was, I think it was early in the morning is the one that I remember. And, you know, you look up at the clock and you realize only an hour has gone by and you feel like it's been about six. <laughs> and you are physically drained, even though the only thing that you have done is sit there with your fingers on a keyboard for an hour. But when it, when it really flows like that, it's... It's funny that that's what I thought of when you said cathartic, because it's not like I was necessarily getting out my own anger. I don't exactly remember what I was writing at that moment, but it definitely has that physical and, and emotional effect. It's a different so, kind of catharsis maybe, yeah, than we're used to. Yeah, but it's way more exhausting. I mean, you don't think of writing as an exhausting activity. You're not, you know, right. out pulling boulders up a hill or something. You know, what <laughs> What do you have to complain about that, that you've worn yourself out writing? <laughs> and yet there are times when it when it happens. But it it definitely makes me think about things differently. It makes you realize what you know and what you don't know. The book that I've been working on most recently is a historical novel, which is a completely wow. different beast than Heck writing yeah. a fantasy novel where the answer to, you know, how does the postal service work is, I don't know, I'll make it up. Um, yeah, when, when you're talking about London in 1893, you have to actually figure it out, which means that, you know, you kind of stop because now I don't know the answer. Now I have to go find the answer, which is great if you're the kind of curious person who wants to go find the answer except then you end up down the research rabbit hole um 
it's not great in terms of it taking you out of what you're trying to write because it does interrupt the flow. And I'm sure that there's somebody who's listening to this who's thinking, shouldn't you have done your homework before <laughs> you started? But when you write without an outline, you don't necessarily know what you need to know before you start. Sure. So, you know, you kind of have to say, okay, I got to figure out what the answer is to that now. And you may not need to know right that minute. It may be, I'm going to mark this and I'm going to come back tomorrow and I'm going to finish this and then I'm going to go look for the answer. That's the smart way to do it if you can. But, um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a rabbit hole. It can be <laughs> exhausting. It can be educational and illuminating about yourself as much as anybody else. So, Great. you know, because I think all your characters are part of you. Speaking of the silver child, <laughs> and I, 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 I'm not, I'm new at this interviewing game, so uh -huh. uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to gush. My favorite, <laughs> would you call it fantasy, sci-fi? I'd call it young adult fantasy. Young adult fantasy, a little different. It's than regardless, usual. one of my favorite sci-fi fantasy books, and one of my favorite books of the last ten years. I really, oh my God, so I really enjoyed that book. <laughs> um, when did you decide you wanted to publish? Oh, when you say wanted to publish, do you mean like publish a novel? Get it I'm sorry, out there I should, or yeah, publish a novel? When when did you uh, have the idea that this idea needed to be more widely distributed? I think I always had the goal to publish it, even when I was at the beginning and didn't know what the heck it was. I didn't know what that might look like, and it took a while to get it to the point where there's no done in writing it, you know it there's only i've done everything i can really do with this now and if i keep going i'm probably going to either drive myself crazy or unintentionally make it really bad so <laughs> you know you get to the point where you know i need to be done with this now and it's never going to be perfect and so there are still things that every once in a while i think about going yeah i should have done that differently but no, you, you got to be done or you'll never move on and do the next thing. But, but yeah, I think I always, you know, it was my master's thesis. So there was always the idea that, hey, I'm writing this book and I'm getting this input from these two really awesome authors who are my faculty mentors. And if they can't help me turn this into something that should go out into the world, probably nobody can. So, you know, and, and Rachel Pollack, who was my second advisor, Definitely, you know, she said, you should absolutely see if you can get this published. So, you know, I kept working on it for a while after I finished graduation because or after I graduated. I, as a writer, I can talk. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, uh, Reiko Rizzuto, who was my other advisor, told me that when she, uh, when you finish up in your last semester, you not only have your faculty advisor, you have a second reader. So Reiko had been my advisor for the first year Rachel took over the second year, and then Reiko was my second reader. So she got to see what had happened with it after the first year, which was cool. That's nice. But she also said in her comments to me at the end of that semester that, you know, I have a son who's right about the right age for this book, and I was really tempted to give it to him. And, you know, part of me thought, well, you should have. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but, but that both of them being so encouraging, it's kind of like, yeah. See if I can get this thing out there. So, so there you go. Wonderful. 
What's the earliest thing you remember writing that wasn't an assignment? <laughs> okay, so when I was in fourth grade, my brother, Wayne, the architect, who is three years younger than me, came down with chickenpox. For some reason, I was really, really fascinated by the chickenpox. It might have been because, you know, he broke out in red spots, you know, and all of that. But whatever it was, I remember taking these little sheets of paper and writing this story that was called My Wife Has the Chickenpox. <laughs> And it was all about this guy who was taking care of, of his wife. And, and my mom helped me make a little green construction paper cover. I, it's freaky to me how well I remember this. Wow. Um, and I think I tried to draw a chicken. You know how when you're a kid, they have you draw a turkey short sure. around your hand? I think I drew a, a white crayon chicken on the front that way. And what I really remember about it is my mom saying to me, you never know, you might be a born writer. And I think that that sentence just kind of lodged itself somehow. Oh, wow, yeah. So, so that is the first thing I remember writing. That I don't remember a single thing that happens in it, but I remember writing it. Well, I you remember don't have what it? The, I, my mom <laughs> might have it. I kind of doubt it because when they moved to Florida, they got rid of a lot of stuff. <laughs> But you never know. That's the kind of thing that might have survived the purge. But if they have it, I'm not aware that they have it. I'm pretty sure I don't have it. <laughs> um, so what inspired you to write that? And in general, just what inspired you to start writing like that? If you can't remember the chicken pox story, then, you know. Would you say that your mother planted a seed or was it there before? She She might have... She might have planted a seed. She might have encouraged something that was already there. I don't know. When when I was a little kid, there were only three things that I wanted to do. I wanted to act. I wanted to sing. And I wanted to read books. That was pretty much it. And to the extent that I understood that books were a thing that somebody actually wrote, that they didn't just magically appear out of the sky or whatever, I, I wanted to write books. But I think it took me a while to really grasp that that was a thing you could do. The, the chicken pox story might have been the first time that, you know, it was like, ooh, I could do this. I could write a thing. Um, mostly what inspires me now is curiosity about something. You know, what what would happen if, um, I mean, the, the, the Silver Child started with an unfinished first sentence. That was the baby had been born with blank. Uh, and because I was feeling strikingly original that day, the rest of the sentence was a silver spoon in its mouth because nobody's ever heard that before. <laughs> and and I spent a good while saying to myself, you can't be born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You can't you can't do this. This doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. You got to come up with something else. And then there was this moment and I would bet you that I was in the shower because that seems to be where my synapses fire. And I also blame this on the fact that I'd been reading a whole bunch of Neil Gaiman, particularly his blog, which I always thought was at least as good as his books because <laughs> there was just so much good stuff. In it. Um, and this little voice in my head said, you know, okay, you can't be born with a silver spoon in your mouth, but what if you were? And that just changed the perspective enough that I said, oh, what if you were? Um, 
the book that I have now is, okay, what if you put these two characters from two totally different times together? What, what would happen? And it, I mean, it's that, it's that broad and that general and, and then things just kind of materialize when you follow that question. Uh, you spoke of Neil Gaiman, uh, Gaiman. What other authors have inspired you or as, or artists in general? Oh, heavens. When I was writing The Silver Child, I, it was actually a really great gig for grad school. You know, other people are, are reading, you know, Jonathan Franzen or whatever. And it's a bazillion pages and all of this. I'm reading things like A Wrinkle in Time and, you know, the Philip Pullman, his Dark Materials book. Sure. I, I read um, The Dark is Rising. For the first time ever, I don't know how I missed that book when I was a kid. I knew it existed, and somehow I never read it never read. until I was, you know, 30-something. Um, so so that kind of stuff, Any anything that kind of takes the world and spins it in an unexpected direction. But, you know, there's... It can be a scene or a line in a movie. It can be a line from a song. It can be just about anything. I mean, the the novel that I was working on when I started grad school, which I never finished, it's probably just as well because I think that a whole big chunk of the premise makes no sense at all. <laughs> but it came from an image in a Suzanne Vega song. Oh wow! And I just suddenly, you know, had this character and another character that encountered her and was trying to figure her out because she was kind of weird, and and that's that's also when I discovered that characters will talk to you, talk back to you, say no, I'm not doing that. It, you know, I mean, I've had when I was writing that, I had a whole conversation with a character who, you know, I kept saying, so where are you from? And he said, Chicago. I said, you can't be from Chicago because I can't write Chicago. I've never been to Chicago. You can be from Boston. You can be from New York. You can be from London. You can be, you know, from Philadelphia. You can be from all these other places. You cannot be from Chicago. He said, I'm really sorry, but I'm from Chicago. It's <laughs> like, you, no, you can't. <laughs> you know? And I finally said, okay, fine. I will go to the library. You can be from Chicago, but you're going to be a teacher because I know how to write that. And he said, okay. And I thought, I've just had the weirdest conversation with somebody who doesn't exist. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's, that's the kind of stuff that happens. And I remember reading when I was in high school. I don't remember what, which author it was in an interview who talked about that. You know, your characters don't necessarily do what you want them to do. And I thought, that's the biggest crock I've ever heard. You're the author. You're God. You can do whatever you want. And then it happened to me. <laughs> I said, oh, Okay, maybe that's what you meant all those years ago. You are a creativity coach? I am. Who are your creativity coaches? Oh. <laughs> whether they know it or not. Oh, whether they know it or not. That's an who's, interesting who's question. Who's inspired you through the years to be creative? Well, I have a couple friends from creativity coaching who are great friends and are also incredibly encouraging and it helps that you know they do their own crazy creative stuff too and so that would be paula farrington who was my practice coach when we were in training together 
and we've been friends ever since. And Janet Whitehead, who is up in Canada. So we've never actually met in person, but you know, if I get to one of those moments where I know that a coach would be really, really helpful because it's really, really hard to coach yourself, I usually will contact one or the other of them and go, okay, I'm doing the crazy thing. <laughs> Help me not do the crazy thing. Tell me what won't work if I say it to myself. Um, and Jill Badonsky, who put together Kaizen Muse Creativity Coaching, is, is a pretty obvious choice. But other people... Um, well, there was always music in my house when I was a kid. And, you know, I started singing in choirs probably when I was about four is my guess. So, you know, that that's been more or less a constant with a couple of short periods of, of not doing that for a long time. And then when I went to college, I am the person when I was teaching, I used to tell kids my college admission story if they were stressing out because you know i mean they you you know they apply to like 62 schools now and i go are you crazy but i'm the weird kid who applied to one and i remember when i when i got the letter from bucknell and was standing there at the mailbox holding it in my hand and thought oh if this isn't what i wanted to be I'm in deep deep trouble <laughs> And it was, fortunately, but um, the whole reason that I applied to Bucknell was that I wanted to sing in the Rook Chapel Choir. Uh. And that's why I didn't want to apply anywhere else. It was just, nope, that's where I'm going. So I had a similar moment after I auditioned for Bill Payne and thought, you know, if you don't get into this choir, what are you going to do? <laughs> fortunately, that didn't, have to, that didn't happen either. But... I would definitely say that he's a, a huge creative mentor. I oh, mean, wonderful. singing for him for four years stretched my whole idea of what choral music was and could be and, and just how a choir could function. So there, his choirs are so tight. You know, there is, there is nothing out of place. You know, I, I don't think I fully understood when I got there. I mean, I did because I had taken piano lessons for a while. I knew what flat and sharp were, you, you know, but but I didn't understand when I'd be in a choir rehearsal until I was there, you know, when somebody would say, you're flat. And I would think, how do you know? Uh. And by Christmas that year, I knew how you knew, you know, and now it's it, that's one of those things you can't ever unlearn. You know, now I hear somebody who's flat and I just go, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> um, which sort of turns you into a snob. But... <laughs> You know, and, and he's one of those kind of people who knows how to bring the best out of other people and out of himself because he composes on top of, of conducting. But he knows how to do that and to keep it fun. And I think that's part of why his groups work so well together and why we always all got along so well. We used to say we were the same kind of crazy and that there must have been <laughs> some kind of invisible personality test when you auditioned for him that if right. you weren't that kind of crazy, you weren't going to get into the choir. But I think that's that's all part of it. But but yeah, he he makes amazing things happen out of what certainly feels like nothing it's like magic that baton i swear is a magic wand um so those those are probably the the most formative ones and then you know 
people who know me have heard me talk about my, my sainted 10th grade English teacher because he, he made the mistake. <laughs> and, and I don't know. I, I don't know if he would see it as a mistake now or not. Back at the beginning of that year, he heard somebody talking with me and one of us said something about how I had been writing this story and he asked if he could see it. And it, it was, it was Dr. Who fan fiction, which I did not know what fan fiction was at the time, but I had decided that if I wasn't going to get to watch my favorite show every week, I was jolly well going to write my own. And when I took it in the next day, I think it was about eight single spaced pages long. What he did not know was that the next day there would be four more. <laughs> and the next day there would be more. <laughs> and it just kept growing. <laughs> and it lived in this yellow binder on the shelf in his room. It kind of turned into this big joke that it was this interminable thing. But that was, it wasn't the first time that a teacher had encouraged me to write. But it was the first time that I had something that big and wasn't discouraged from writing, uh, you know. And uh. so I had the presence of mind even at that age to be aware of the fact that I might have been a colossal pest. But it didn't seem to bother him. So I just kept bringing more stuff. And I still have the folder because uh. it did eventually come back to me. And it still has his comments that, you know, were all written by hand because hello, 80s. And, it, you know, that's just one of those things. The yellow folder is sacred and uh -huh. will never, ever go anywhere. But, but yeah, that was, that was Richard Barley at Suburban High School. God bless him. Because <laughs> he still hasn't gotten managed to get rid of it. He me. didn't read the chicken pox story. No, the chicken pox story was, <laughs> was gone before gone that. Um, He'd probably be really amused if he could read the chicken box story. <laughs> You're going to have to tell him the next time. <laughs> Where would you say the most unexpected place creativity has come from for you? Ooh. <sighs> you know, when I think in terms of writing, because it's such a different process than, than singing, because the music is already written, so you don't have to come up with that yourself um and if you're singing in a choir somebody else is directing things but with writing it's it's always unexpected it's always some weird True. little question that lodges itself in my head and doesn't let go a couple years ago i had a birthday party and afterwards i had this tiny little robot tea infuser. Very you know, cool. you open it up, yeah, you stick the tea in there, and it has absolutely. its little arms that sit on the side of the cup and whatever. And I couldn't figure out where it came from. It, you know, it seemed to me, you know, it's like, okay, I don't remember seeing this before the party. So it must have been somebody's gift, but I don't know whose it was. And in the course of, you know, it was that kind of question that just nags at you. Where did it come from? And I finally thought, well, it's a robot. Maybe it is just visiting from somewhere else. 
And that was all it took for this little fragment of a story to start forming in my head. And, and I, you know, I can always tell because it somehow I, I don't have a better way to explain it than just, it feels like magic. Something happens, something opens up and this thing, and you can see it. And it, it felt like a kid's book. And I remember writing down, you know, the first paragraph or two, because I kept thinking, this could be a fun book for my nephews. I could write this little kid's book about this kid who finds this little robot. And, you know, maybe the robot's like E.T. is trying to get home, or maybe there are more robots coming, you know, whatever. And I didn't finish that one. But it's, I mean, it can be something that simple. But the first thing, because I had gone for a long time without writing anything, And back around, I would guess, 2004, 2005, I started to feel like I needed to write something again, but I had no idea what. So I I got involved with a West Wing fan fiction challenge because... It's like, okay, I know, I know these characters. I can borrow these characters and, and, you know, and then somebody will give you a prompt and whatever. This is your prompt. And this is like the one item that this person wants in their story. And you're writing the story for this person or whatever. And then I discovered on live journal, which makes me feel like I'm a million years old now, um, (laughs) this community that was called the first line. Was based on a magazine by the same name that has a first line. I think they put it on the cover and then everything that's inside it is people's responses to previous first lines. So the idea is you write your thing, you send it into them. If they like it, they print it. But this was like once a week, somebody would put up a first line prompt, which is where the silver child's prompt came from. But the first one that I found there was the funeral was yesterday. And I thought, hmm, that's kind of interesting. And I I typed it into a little text editor, and this whole paragraph came after it. And I thought, that's interesting. I have no idea what that is. And I, you know, it was like a Saturday morning or something. And I, I got up and I wandered off and came back a little while later and looked at it again. And the next thing I knew, I had two more paragraphs who is this narrator who's writing this thing and where's this coming from? And I wrote an entire story that way over the course of the weekend, it would come two or three paragraphs at a time. And then that would be it. It's like, okay, that seems to be all there is. I'm going to go do the dishes now. And I'd come back later and there'd be more. And it, it did eventually start to kind of nag at me. Like, what's going on? What's the answer to this? You know, cause it was this guy who was writing about, you know, his, his whole situation with his mother. And, and by the end of the weekend, I had this finished thing. I still don't really know what to call it. It's the one thing that I don't really feel like I wrote. I feel like it, you know, I, you hear these stories. I can't remember which composer it was. I want to say it was like, you know, Verdi, I feel like there's a V in there somewhere, <laughs> but, um, Vivaldi maybe, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but, but who said, you know, I don't write anything. I take dictation from God, oh. so, <laughs> something like that. And that's how that story felt to me. It was just like, I don't know where these words came from, except maybe toward the end. Cause the more I wondered and wanted to know about it, the more I was 
also kind of going, am I interfering with whatever weird thing is going on here? I don't, I don't know. Right. But I still, I've, I've never even really edited it because I don't know what it is. I mean, I know it's this thing, but it doesn't really feel like it's mine. And it's the only time that that's ever happened. Oh, wow. But that was the first original thing that I wrote after getting my feet wet writing, you know, West Wing, West West Wing and Firefly. I tried to say them both at the same time. Uh, it doesn't work. Um, you know, and a couple other kinds of, of fan fiction. It's like this thing just came out of nowhere. And that's, that's ultimately what led me to grad school because I got a couple years later. It's like, uh, I feel like I've done everything I can do without, you know, input from somebody else. So... So you felt a flow with that story that, that like yeah. you said, that just came out of you. So what would your uh, advice be to, or or not even advice, what would you say um, when you don't feel that flow creatively? <laughs> Good luck. What, what, are you, yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what are your tricks? Do you have any tricks? I have some tricks. Um, the The trick that I still like the most is the trick that – the coach that I worked with when I was doing creativity coach training, I thought she was going to have a heart attack when I told her <laughs> what I would do. But I, I discovered that if I told myself, you know, set a timer for 15 minutes and said, okay, I'm just going to write whatever comes out for 15 minutes, even if it's blah, 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 or I have no ideas or I don't know what to write, even if it's, absolute crap and it just it's pulling teeth you know just 15 minutes if if i'm got nothing else in 15 minutes then blah 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 for six pages i can stop but i'm gonna at least do that i never really ended up writing blah 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 um I probably started a couple times with, I have no idea what to write, but eventually it would come. And I think that ironically, the thing that, that made that coach freak out when I said this is part of what actually made it work for me. I think the, the time pressure somehow just got synapses firing. Don't ask me how, but usually even if it wasn't flow flow, by the end of that 15 minutes, I could at least get a couple pages written. Even if I didn't think it was great, it was it was there. Sometimes that was all it would take to get things going. I haven't had to do this lately, which is why I keep talking about it in past tense. <laughs> but, you know, that was more of a grad school under pressure time limits kind of thing, uh, which actually grad school is what taught me that deadlines are magic. They are not magic for everyone. Douglas Adams, for instance, is famous for saying, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing noise they make as they fly by. <laughs> but I, when I first went to my first grad school residency, I was absolutely terrified and had suddenly realized in the first couple of sessions that when I applied to this program, which was low residency, so I was basically doing full-time grad school and working full-time as a teacher at the same time, which is crazy right on its face. Um, somehow this hadn't sounded so daunting to me. And I hadn't really, on some level I had understood, but I hadn't really understood what this was going to be. <laughs> so I spent the first week trying to keep myself from packing up my car and leaving. But, it, it, you know, the way that it worked was you had three weeks. At the end of every three weeks, you would 
print out all your stuff, because we were very low tech 10 years ago, um, and mail it off to your advisor, priority mail. And then within the next week, you would get everything back. How these people read everything that they read, <laughs> I don't know. Part of what you would put in there was a letter about how your process was going. You know, I really like this thing. I think this is working really well, but there's this other thing that I have no idea how to solve and, and it's driving me crazy, you know, or, I mean, it could even include things like my grandmother just died, which did happen to me in the middle of my first semester, which is actually part of how the silver child happened. Cause I started out doing short stories, which was never going to be a good idea for me. I am not short at anything, <laughs> but, but anyway, the, you know, it was drilled into us that part of the value of this program was, you know, when you write, by definition, you work by yourself and you have to be able to keep to deadlines and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, when I decided by the end of the week that I was actually going to stick around and do this crazy thing, I just thought, no way in hell am I sending my stuff in late ever. Because how horribly embarrassing would that be? <laughs> I am not doing that. And and there were there were packet periods where I would be halfway through, you know, so I'd have about 10 days left. And I'd be thinking, I'm supposed to send in 25 pages of new stuff. I have a three-page letter to write. I have three books to read and write about. And I have 10 days. And there's not a chance this is going to happen. And somehow it always happened. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I sat down and said, I'm going to do this for an hour and then I'm going to do this and tomorrow I'm going to do, I mean, I, I might've had a vague sense of that, but somehow knowing that that deadline was coming made it happen wow. that I still don't really understand. So I'm a big fan of deadlines, but they have to be credible deadlines. That was a really credible deadline. If I just say to myself, okay, by the end of this week, I'm going to do whatever. That's not a credible deadline. Right. That's not ever going to work. Um, the one other thing that, that works really well for me is that if, you know, if I've been writing for an hour and have to go do something else, whatever, even if it's not going well, but definitely if it is, I will literally not finish a sentence. If I know where that sentence is going and I know that I'm going to remember tomorrow because, you know, right. it's going some obvious place or whatever, I'll just leave the sentence unfinished. Because somehow wow. having that place to just pick up in the middle of it helps get back into it. Interesting. There's a, plenty of other stuff too, but those but are the, a, the the OCD big in ones. me would make me go finish that sentence. So, well, <laughs> maybe that's inspiration can, as well. Yeah, if you can make the OCD and you wait until the next day, <laughs> right. that'll help you get back into your flow. Yeah. Um, I would think that travel probably is good to get the creative juices flowing. Mm -hmm. You recently returned from New Zealand, correct? Uh huh. And uh, tell me how that inspired you. Oh. <laughs> do you want to do a separate podcast for that <laughs> one? Or should we just keep this one rolling? <laughs> you know, I did See, I have... put that near the end. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a moment when I was in Queenstown. And Queenstown, I was in Wellington first. Wellington and I didn't really gel partially because the weather in Wellington was just miserable. But I also realized I hadn't gone to New Zealand to see a city and I was in a city. 
So it, it was messing with me because I kept thinking, I know I'm in New Zealand. They've all got an accent. They drive on the other side of the road. The money is different. I'm obviously in New Zealand, but I don't feel like I am. And then I thought, wait till you get to Queenstown because you didn't come here for a city. You came here for the landscape. And as soon as I got to Queenstown, I was like, no, oh, I'm in New Zealand. <laughs> but um, in, in Queenstown, there is a statue of some guy whose name I don't remember. But, you know, clearly a guy mid-19th century. You know, he's got the frock coat and the whole deal. And there's this sheep standing next to him because it's New Zealand, <laughs> and obviously. Right. And, and I did have a moment when I looked at that and I thought, maybe I should set my book here. And then I thought, and undo everything that I've done and everything <laughs> that I've researched and all that. I, you know, if I were three pages into the book, that would make sense. Right. But I'm not. So maybe not. Um, so, so that definitely was, was a moment. But, I, you know, I think that a lot of how it inspired me, I'm still figuring out. There's something about going somewhere that is that far afield though I don't think it has to be. But in New Zealand's case, it's just so unbelievably beautiful. And as you drive around, and I'm not big on driving if I don't have to, but I drove in New Zealand because I wanted to see the landscape, and I'm really glad that I did. Um, as I drove around, I would see things that, you know, there, there was one stretch, there's this road called the Thermal Explorer Highway. And you have to understand that in New Zealand, a highway is two lanes, one in each direction. And, you know, most of the time. Around Auckland, it's more like what we would call a highway. But it was the weirdest thing as I drove along. On the one side, off to my right, it was flatter and there were some foothills in the distance. On the left side there were all of these weird little hills. New Zealand has these little hills that are, are not even the size of your house, probably, but they rise up out of nowhere and then they're, they're done again. And I was driving along and I may have just been punchy at that point because I was stuck in a car by myself for too <laughs> right. long. But I remember thinking that the, the landscape on the right looked like Pennsylvania and the landscape on the left looked like Middle Earth. And it just amused me no end that like, oh, look, Pennsylvania on the right, Middle Earth on the left. But, you know, you see these different formations and things. And, and like the cows in New Zealand climb hills like goats. Oh. You know, I, I found yeah. a picture a couple months ago that I'd forgotten that I took. But I took it because I knew no one here would believe me. <laughs> because, you know, goats are skinnier and a little bit better suited toward climbing up rocky Chills, sure. you know, you you don't think of cows doing that if you come from Pennsylvania or New Jersey, but there they were. Because I kept thinking, are those goats? What are, are cows? Really? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, anything like that, you never know. There may be some weird cow up on a cliff that turns up in a story at some point. But you do, you do look at a landscape like that that is so unlike anything you see here. And first of all, you're mind boggled by how gorgeous it is but it's also really easy to see how like the Polynesian gods and uh, it, you know those yes. cultures and everything fit with that landscape so you know I think I think that certainly ends up 
feeding your whole well of inspiration as do just the people that you meet and the conversations that you have and weird little souvenirs that you might find and <laughs> you know because everybody's right. got their strange little kitschy souvenirs and food that you eat that's different you know any anything like that all goes into it even if you don't necessarily realize where it comes back out later in another right. form yeah I think there's definitely a story in uh, Hobbits living across the road from Amish. <laughs> so write that down. I'll be You're haunted welcome. by Tolkien's yeah. ghost. <laughs> As a creativity coach, um, what's your biggest reward from your, your uh, oh, see now coaching other people? Is there is there something you can pinpoint as that is actually such an easy question? Oh wow, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I I just love helping somebody who is stuck and frustrated and can't see the way out manage to do the stuff they love to do. Yeah. You know, when when you talk to somebody who's there and they're just like, I have this thing and I want to make more of this thing, but it's not, <laughs> you know, it's it's the painting or it's the writing or, you know, sculpting, what, whatever the heck it it is. And and they're just like, but I feel like it's all crap. And why am I doing this? And I'm just procrastinating all the time. And you know, I mean, everybody everybody thinks that their creative process is their own weird little horror show, because <laughs> because everybody thinks that you know, if you ask somebody what their creative process is, they're they're probably going to tell you the parts that aren't the horror show, you know, Oh, I sit down at my typewriter and I have my cup of coffee and you know, whatever. But then they get to the part where they get stuck and they're convinced that they're the only person on earth who has ever been stuck, who has ever been stuck that way, that nobody else can understand it, that, you know, everybody else gets stuck in some other way. That's so much easier to get out of. None of this is true. Everybody hits the same creative blocks. They might look slightly different, but everybody hits the same stuff. Everybody forgets to have fun with it. Everybody forgets that, you know, your creative work to a certain extent should be play. It, you know, I mean, maybe it's work later when you go to figure out how you want to revise your manuscript. But when you're writing it, it should be play. Otherwise, why are you doing it? Um, everybody's convinced that their stuff is crap. Everybody. <laughs> I, I mean, I was one of the few people who still liked my thesis novel when I finished grad school, which blew my mind. And then, then, and then you start going, what's wrong with me? I still like my book. <laughs> because that's how the creative mind works. Right. And I think that's what makes it as magical as it is, but that's also what makes it this you know, dark, sticky swamp of ick, you know, you, you kind of don't get one without the other. You, you got to deal, you got to get through the swamp <laughs> say the fire swamp. Cause now that's <laughs> the image that's in my head. <laughs> you know, you got to beat the rodents of unusual size, <laughs> but everybody has the rodents of unusual size. They may look a little bit different and everybody can convince themselves that their stuff is awful. And every once in a while, you convince yourself that it's wonderful. That's probably just as dangerous. The only thing that's important is that you're doing it and that you're having fun with it. Amen. And even if nobody else ever reads it, you still wrote it. You got to have fun with it. You got to play with these characters. You, you know, you got to sing this song. You know, that's that's the important part. And I remember Jill saying when we were in coach training that 
you know, if when you finished talking to a client, you felt really, really good, that was how you knew that this was what you were supposed to be doing. And I literally <laughs> I was on that call going, oh, Jill's been spying on me. After I've been on the phone. Because there are times, you know, I'll get off the phone and, and I will just like, you know, literally jump around and, and just be like, yeah, that was awesome. You know, now she's going to go do her thing. This is great. So, so that's, that's the thing that I love the most. And then watching what people do with that is amazing and convincing them there, there is a, a downloadable file on my website that is called, it's nancynorbeck.com. Okay. Um, it's called find inspiration anywhere. Mm. And it came out of a conversation that I had with a kid who was, I think he was going into seventh grade. So he was maybe 12 and he wanted to be a writer. And so his parents decided that they would find him somebody to work with. And they found me through a friend of theirs, which I thought was the greatest thing ever. You know, I love people who do stuff like this because so many people are like, you can't do that. You need to go be a doctor or a mechanic or whatever. Um, So I was talking to this kid and I only got to work with him for a month or so, but we had so much fun. Because we could have fun. We didn't have to be writing, you know, papers for history class. And when I saw him the last time, he said, what am I going to do if I run out of ideas? I said, you're not going to run out of ideas. Come on. You're you're not going to run out of ideas. He said, how do you know? We were sitting in a library at at a regular table. And I said, tell me about this chair. And he just kind of looks at me. I said, just humor me. Tell me about the chair. So he described the chair. I said, okay, now where is the chair? And don't tell me it's in the library because it's not in the library. Pretend that it's not a chair. You have no idea what it is. Where is it? And we went through this whole thing. And by the end of it, he had the beginnings of this whole story and and a world. And it was all because we asked questions about something completely ordinary. And I've used this exercise with people in classes that I've done and, and it doesn't have to be a chair, you know, I mean, it can right. be my reading glasses, it can be a remote control, it can be anything. Right. And, and if you just are willing to look at it differently, and see it not as the ordinary thing that you take for granted, you can find an idea in it just by asking questions around it. Where is it? Why is it here? Who's in the room with it? Is, is there anything else nearby? And you end up with, you know, characters and a, a place and all of this stuff and you can use it with other things. It doesn't have to be just a writing exercise though. It lends itself most easily to writing, but I put a version of it up on my website because yeah, you can find an idea anywhere. You just have to be willing to look at the world a little differently than you did before. And that kind of stuff. I, I love that stuff. I love it when somebody just, you know, sitting there going, I don't know where this is coming from. What's going on? This is wild. There's like, you know, kangaroo people in this spaceship, which is what came out of the remote control the one time. So, you know, and, and these are people who, you know, ordinarily don't think about kangaroos or spaceships, but here's this thing. And it came from, from nowhere. And, you know, I just looked at this kid and we were done. I said, see, you're going to be fine. You're never going to run out of ideas. So. That, that to me is is why I do this. It's just go do your awesome. thing. Stop worrying about it so much. Go do your thing, which is easy to say stop worrying about it so much. It's much harder to do it. Right. So I don't want to give anybody the impression that, you know, you're just worrying too much and that's your problem and all because that's it's not always that easy to get around it. But that's why there are people like me. 
There you go. So, yeah. <laughs> Top three books. Oh. <laughs> Oh, that's mean. That's Off the top mean. of your head. Off the you top can pass. of my head. You can pass. Well, since I mentioned it already, I love The Dark is Rising. Mm -hmm. It's a great, great book. Um, I will admit that I haven't finished that series because I don't want uh, it to end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'd have to go back and reread all of it if I wanted to anyway, which is okay with me. Um Oh, what's I always have something on the tip of my tongue that's not not quite there. There's too many. Let's face there it. are too many. <laughs> um, I thought the ocean at the end of the lane, Neil Gaiman's book oh, from a couple years yeah. ago, was just incredibly beautiful. Wow! And I love how you know it's ostensibly a book for kids, but there's so much more in there. And, and that's part of why, you know, there have been some things in the last couple of years where people have kind of poo-pooed the idea of adults reading oh. YA, you know, why are you doing that? You're a grown-up. No. <laughs> Come on. There's more stuff in there. Um, which makes me think of, of His Dark Materials because, boy, is that a uh, dense set. And I haven't read any of the new ones. Yes. But, but that's great stuff. But also – and this is more than three now, but <laughs> I wore my Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy socks uh, yesterday. I figured Douglas Adams. You know, was in there. I <laughs> I love Douglas Adams, and I still remember I I went to New York a little more than a month ago to see John Lithgow's one man show, Stories by Heart, mm -hmm. and I went because he does two stories and he acts out the whole the whole thing, and one is Ring Lardner's haircut, which I was not familiar with. The other one is Uncle Fred Flits By, which is a short story by P.G. Woodhouse. And probably if I had to pick one short story, that would be my favorite. So, so I love Douglas Adams because he's Douglas Adams and he's hilarious. And I think I discovered the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when I was in sixth or seventh grade, maybe. But even more than Douglas Adams is P.G. Woodhouse, who a lot of Americans have not heard of. Right. But I, I went up to New York and I saw John Lithgow's one-man show, Stories by Heart, at the end of February, right before it closed. And he, it's, it's two short stories. So, you know, you go in hearing this title and you think he's going to do all of these things. And then I realize this is going to take forever. But... The, the first one that he did was Ring Lardner's Haircut, which is pretty much like a single monologue. The second one, and the reason that I went, is because he does Uncle Fred Flits By. If I had to pick one short story that was my favorite short story ever, it would probably be Uncle Fred Flits By. I found P.G. Woodhouse. I was babysitting one night when I was in high school. And there was this show called Woodhouse Playhouse that came on PBS after the kids came to bed. <laughs> I laughed so hard and I thought, what is this? <laughs> and I remembered the name and I was taking a class over at York College over the summer. And I had all this time after the class was over before, you know, mom would come pick me up or whatever. So I'm sitting in the library and I thought, I'm going to look this guy up. And I found this book called A Woodhouse Bestiary. So they're all animal stories. 
an Uncle Fred flits by is the penultimate story in this book. And it is just, somebody once described P.G. Woodhouse as inspired lunacy, and it's the only way you can describe it. Or maybe it was Douglas Adams. But here's the thing. As soon as I started reading P.G. Woodhouse, I understood that Douglas Adams had read a whole lot of P.G. Woodhouse because the turns of phrase were similar enough, not identical, but the sensibility was was there. But Uncle Fred Flits By is just, you know, if I try to describe it, we'll be here for another hour. But, <laughs> but it is totally absurd, unlikely, hilarious. And the turns of phrase that, that Woodhouse uses are just, no, nobody else has ever done the same thing. Douglas Adams probably got the closest. There's a, a line at the beginning of one of my favorite Jeeves stories where Bertie Worcester is having breakfast and he says, you know, that Jeeves, you know, brings over the fragrant eggs and bee and I pronged a moody forkful. <laughs> so it's, it's stuff like that. And, and frankly, watching John Lithgow be all of these crazy characters, including a parrot on his own on stage was well worth the price of admission. But, but yeah, so I, I mean, I can't pick just one Woodhouse book, but if I had to pick one short story out of all the short stories in the world, I'd probably pick Uncle Fred Flits by, which is not what you asked me, but Hey, but anyway. it's a writer. <laughs> Time for one more question? Sure. You have to walk on stage in front of a sold-out auditorium. Oh, God. <laughs> and sing one song without rehearsal. What song would it be? Uh, that you have an orchestra probably... or a band backing you up that have practiced it, but you must sing it. <laughs> but right. I haven't, so I have you no have idea what they're going to do. You have not practiced it, so what song would that be? It would probably be Lush Life. Oh, is that right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the one you know best, you think? Yeah, and I just love that song. Awesome song. It's such a great, moody, <laughs> you know. I My favorite version is Queen Latifah. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, awesome. there are certainly plenty of others, and Billy Strayhorn's favorite was Sarah Vaughn, but oh, yeah. he never got to hear Queen Latifah do it, is my, <laughs> is my theory. There, there's just... Nice. I don't know. She's she's got that sensibility because it's like it's it's such a depressing song. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But there's yeah. also kind of this undercurrent of what's the word I want? There's something about it that is resigned, but not quite. You know, there's this little sense of, well, I may have missed my moment, but. Yep. I'm not happy about it. I'm stuck here, but um, there's more to me than that, you know. So, so yeah, that's that's one of my favorite songs. That's not inspirational. My Nancy Norbeck, thank you. Thank you. You were quite welcome. You did a great job. That's it for today. If you'd like to check out the recorded exercise I mentioned, you can download it from the show notes at fycuriosity.com. As always, thanks for joining me, and thanks to Dominic Shortino for asking such great questions. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. 
If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.